I'm grateful to be here. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive reader. Uh, thank you to Georgia for asking me to do this. I appreciate it. And it's always it's always exciting to get to another Overeaters Anonymous meeting in another community, whether I'm doing that via Zoom or doing it live or traveling. Um, and I love Overeaters Anonymous. I do. Uh, so be prepared, right? Because it's going to be one long conversation um, about how I love OA and I love God. And, uh, and it's a good thing because if I didn't love those two things, those two entities, right? Overeaters Anonymous and God, God at the first and foremost, and Overeaters Anonymous, 12-step programs in general, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a shot at loving myself. And if I don't love myself, you don't have a chance. So um, it just really means a lot to me to be here. And I started in 12-step programs. I'm 59 years old. I started in Al-Anon in 1986. I got clean and sober in 1987. And I remember turning uh, to a woman next to me uh, and saying, do you think it's possible to have a problem with sugar? Like we have a problem with, um, with alcohol. And she said, absolutely go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I weighed 200 pounds. My top weight is 200 pounds. And um, uh, I, I weigh about 125 now. And that's the least interesting part of my story. It's the least interesting transformation that's happened to me here. But people um, oftentimes are interested in that kind of conversation. And my sponsor always has me make sure I let somebody know that I have a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor and let her know uh, to let people know when I, when I came in. And I came in in February of 1988 and let them know what my top weight was, 200 pounds, and what my current weight is about 125, because that's one of the things we do here in Overeaters Anonymous. It's far and away from being the most important thing, but um, but it's an important thing that we do, right? In terms of experiencing recovery from that physical component of the disease. So I, went to my first OA meeting in February 88 and I went to a meeting in a hospital in Lansing, Michigan, where I'm from. I'm not a California girl. I'm a Midwestern girl. And um, there were five people in this meeting. And if I had taken the direction that I'd gotten in that first meeting, my whole destiny would have been changed in Overeaters Anonymous. Because the direction I got was once I identified after the meeting, when the woman who was leading the meeting stayed to talk with me, because I didn't know what absence was. Again, I had been in Al-Anon at that point for 15 months. I'd been clean and sober in AA for three months. And so I knew what the gist of it was. I knew in AA you didn't drink. So I figured in OA, what, we don't eat? I mean, I remember showing up at this meeting, 11 a.m. meeting, and it's over at 12 noon, and I haven't eaten anything. And... um and so this woman is staying and talking with me afterwards. And once she heard that, she made me commit to immediately leaving and going and having my first meal of the day. But she asked when I 
inquired about absence, she asked if there was a problem food that I had. And I said, sugar, most definitely. I was just thinking about this yesterday. I was doing some writing for my sponsor, reading and writing for my sponsor. And, um, and she said, yeah, that's a really common one for, for many of us. She said, do you think it would be possible for you to not have sugar today and just eat three meals? I can't remember if the conversation went beyond that. I hope it did because we wouldn't ever want to send a newcomer out the door, right? Who's just identified that sugar is a problem and just say to them, no sugar today, three meals. Good luck with that. See you next week. Goodbye. But I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt because even if the conversation didn't go beyond that, I knew I knew how it worked in 12-step programs. I knew what you did. Remember, I had that experience elsewhere. I knew that you got a sponsor and you started working the steps and you were going to meetings and playing the game. I understood how this worked. So even if the conversation didn't go beyond that, the responsibility would be mine. And that's a really important part of the conversation for me. And we'll get that to that in a minute. I'm going to put that on a post-it on the wall here. And... Um, so I left that meeting and I went and I drove to a restaurant, ordered a breakfast meal, even though it was almost one o'clock in the afternoon on this Saturday. And I remember the waitress setting the meal down in front of me, a little glass of juice. And, and I ate that meal and I went out and I sat in my car and I thought, huh, three meals a day and no sugar. It'd be more complicated than that. And for the next dozen years, even though I got a sponsor, I proceeded to complicate it again for the next dozen years. But here's the thing. I got going with a sponsor and we started working the steps. And again, my top weight's 200 pounds. I have not weighed 200 pounds in Overeaters Anonymous since February of 1988. And what I started doing was working the steps and following sponsor direction, right? I don't argue with sponsors or cops. I just take the direction that I'm given and I'm a good foot soldier. There's a lot of things that I've really struggled with in my life, but following sponsor direction has not really been one of them. And, um, and it took me, as I said, I, well, maybe I haven't said this. So yeah, I actually haven't. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1988. And I only have 20, oh yeah, it's June now. So I have 23 years of absence. I only have 23 years of absence. My sobriety date is May 30th, 2000. So I was a slipper for a dozen years. So in, from 1988 to 2000, I still wasn't abstinent, but I was consistently following sponsor direction, not the same sponsor. I had myriad sponsors. I ended up in Los Angeles. I actually went into treatment for an eating disorder. And um, I just was always following sponsor direction because I came from, from Ohio, uh, from Michigan. We were largely influenced by the 12 step program of Bob Smith from Ohio. And Bob's theory was that you need to work the 12 steps over and over and over again. This was in contrast to the New York cohort who were convinced you only needed to work steps one through 12, uh, one through nine 
one time, and then you'd be doing 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of your life. For a long time, Bill Wilson thought you only needed to work one, one four-step. And he reverses himself, and he talks about that in AA Comes Page. But um, again, I came from, from Michigan, so just knew I was going to be going through those steps over and over again. And I was going through them also in Alcoholics Anonymous. It took me a lot longer to get a sponsor in Al-Anon, so I, didn't, I wasn't going with a sponsor until 2004. But, um, but so I was just cycling through over and over again. And, um, and I wasn't getting absent over the years. And I figured there was something wrong with me. And yet, um, well, let me just back up here a minute before I get to the getting abstinent part. Um, so I came from uh, kind of a lower middle-class family. My father had gone to school on the GI Bill. He grew up in real poverty uh, in Flint, Michigan. And, um, and again, went to school on the GI Bill. I was the youngest of five children, probably an unplanned pregnancy. My siblings were all much closer in age and then along I came. And my mother dealt with serious mental health issues. Both of my parents came from alcoholic homes, but um, uh, my dad's alcoholic father was kind of a passive aggressive type guy, very calm relatively, right? In terms of alcoholic standards. He would have a bottle of wine, he'd get home. He was a butcher. The only reason my dad's family didn't go hungry is because his dad was a butcher. His parents were uh, immigrants from what was then Czechoslovakia spoke very limited English. And uh, he'd have a bottle of wine and pass out on the floor. I never even knew that until well, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, one of my dad's, well, my dad's surviving sister told me that. But my mother's father, alcoholic father, was horrendously violent. He wasn't even just a child beater. He was beater upper. And my mother was a wounded bird. She was the oldest and she and her brother, two years younger, and then a brother that came 10 years later, those three got the worst of it. And then there was a daughter that was the youngest and she got the least of it. But, uh, and I have every confidence if you are a boy and your father is hitting you with a closed fist, it's just a shit show, I'm thoroughly convinced. But if you are a girl and that same thing is happening, plus you throw in the more than likely component of sexual abuse, it's just an eyelash worse. And my mother really never got over it. And the problem was, is um, because I was the youngest, and again, siblings all much closer in age. By the time I left third grade, I was never in school with a sibling again. And let me tell you something, I needed to be in school with a sibling. I needed someone, I needed something. And my mom just was checked out. She just wasn't there. And, and because that was the case, and I was spending so much time with her in terms of when she had to, to be around me, because there was a lot of times she should have been around me and was not, um, I was left alone a lot, a lot. And uh, I ended up, I was molested by two different men on a number of occasions. And, um, and you know, OA is really at the forefront of looking at sexual trauma in, in conjunction with uh, eating disorders. You know, we there's that book that's out there. I always forget what that book is called. Came out about three years ago. It's talking about body dysmorphia and sexual trauma and something else. I forget, right? It's a bunch of stories from Overeaters Anonymous members. My story is one of the stories in that book. 
And, um, and you know, I've, I've heard statistics anywhere from 40 to 70% of the people who are dealing with eating disorders, some kind of eating disorder, compulsive eating, bulimia, or anorexia, or binge eating, which is the hot new one that's not new to us, but it's just starting to get tension now. I just saw, there's just a New York Times article about it, just saw it a few days ago. But um, um, it, we're, we're really lucky that, that Overeaters Anonymous is really paying attention to how it is people ended up here. And again, those, there's a wide disparity in that figure. So, and I'm not a, an academic researcher in terms of those kind of numbers and things, but, um, and not everybody has, you know, really obvious sexual trauma that they're dealing with. Some of us do. And, um, and some of us just, you know, grew up in families with real inappropriate boundaries. Even before I was molested by men, I was, there was really inappropriate uh, comments from my father, not sexual comments, but my dad had three overweight daughters and he didn't like it. And he was very vocal about it. And, um, but he would, he would say something nasty to my oldest sister, right? So he'd throw that metaphorical baseball at her and she'd throw five back. So he didn't give her too much grief. And then my middle sister worked for my dad in his business. And so he wasn't going to give her too much trouble. So I was an easy target. Um, and it was very shaming to listen to my father say unkind things. And he would usually say them publicly. Um, and so it just brought up a lot of shame. And yet I was already dealing with shame. Remember, I was molested at five and 10 and, and never told anybody. I never told anybody until I ended up in the rooms, uh, the 12-step rooms, right? De decades later. Um, so I was already dealing with shame. And so to have the, the man who was supposed to be communicating to me that I was a beautiful little princess, as all little girls are beautiful little princesses and all boys are handsome princes on steeds. That's a communication we all should have gotten. Um, I suspect just based on numbers, as I look at the screen, I'm probably not the only one who's dealt with some kind of sexual trauma. But, um, and, and it, so it was just, it was just devastating, right? I was just a troubled child. I was a troubled young woman and I was a troubled young adult and, um, and quite frankly, have dealt with uh, the effects of what I experienced for a lifetime, really, right? Just very painful. And um, if I had not ended up in the 12-step rooms and specifically in Overeaters Anonymous, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be sitting in this chair. And the only reason that I left that first Overeaters Anonymous meeting and had heard that direction, right? Three meals a day, no sugar, life in between. The only reason I didn't do that and couldn't follow that direction is because I wasn't ready to feel the feelings. That's the only reason. That's the absolute only reason. I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings. Again, I didn't know that, remember? I thought there was something wrong with me. I wasn't working it hard enough. I wasn't doing it enough. And this was, this was, hard for me to understand because again, I would get through the steps in Overeaters Anonymous about once every 12 months, 18 months. 
and then I start them over again, right? The longest I ever might have taken to go through the steps through that period of time was two years, right? So I was just cycling through and through it. So it was kind of hard for me to understand that I wasn't doing this, working this hard enough, but I figured I must not have been because I wasn't getting abstinent. 15 minutes. How many? Three minutes? But, 17. Yeah, okay, so three minutes, yep. But here's the, here's the interesting thing, and this is where I'll be heading home with this, is I was working those steps, as I talked about, right? Just working those steps over and over again. So again, started at 200 pounds, two years later, 1988. Remember, I still have that father who would make those nasty comments. So at this point, I'm 26 years old, but I don't weigh 200 pounds anymore. I weigh 180 pounds, right? So something has happened. So I'm, it's still going to be another 10 years before I get absent, but something's happening because I've lost 20 pounds. And I'm at a family event and I walk by my father and, um, and he says, I can see you've lost some weight. And again, there's, you know, it's a family event. So people are around somewhere. I've got a picture of it, right? I can see the outfit I'm wearing right now. Um, and my dad says, well, I can see you've lost some weight, but you got a lot more to go. Don't let up. And I turned around and I said, no more. That's it. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And everybody kind of turned around, right? And looked and stuff. And because nobody would talk to my father that way. But I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. I was really just meeting fire with fire. It was never appropriate for my dad to talk about my weight. That actually qualifies according to DSM, right? As sexual trauma or whatever the language is, right? I'm not a social worker by trade. My background is social work, but I didn't have, I'm not degreed or an academic in social work field. But um, everybody was so shocked and I was shocked. And that was very clearly recovery. Now, again, it was gonna be another 10 years before I got absent. It's gonna be another 10 years before I well, it was actually, it took me longer than that, 12 years, 14 years, 15 years to get to maintenance weight. But nobody could tell me that that wasn't a direct result of working those steps, following direction, right? Because I finally got to stand up to the bully who'd created most of the problems that I ever had behind knowing my value as a young woman. My mother did her share of damage but it was really hurtful, right? And so I'm not somebody who debates in Overeaters Anonymous, right? There is a raging debate in OA. People love to fight in 12-step programs. I don't participate because we're all hard-headed and stubborn. We want to win. I don't want to win. I'll just sit on the sidelines and live in my ash, my experience, strength, and hope. But um, I don't debate whether somebody can work the steps if they're, not, if they're still in the food. I know you can because I can. And how do you argue with somebody's ish? How do you argue with somebody's experience, strength, and hope? So I worked the steps probably 10, 11, 12 times before I got abstinent. And one because, minute remaining, Sheila. Thank you, one minute. And because I worked those steps over and over and over again, it's very clear. That's why the weight slowly came off, right? Slowly, slowly came off. Because by the time I got abstinent in 2000, there's not time for this, obviously. I weighed about 155 pounds, 150, 155 pounds. So something had happened, right? 
I mean, somewhere I had started depending more on God, more on all of you, more on what it is we do here than I was depending on food. So um, when I start working with people, I get them working the steps. And I always say the food is the God job, right? Remember the A, B, and C we read at the end of how it works. A, that we're alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, there probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. See that God couldn't, what if he were sought? So the food is a God, is a God job, right? And it's the caboose of the train. It's the least interesting transformation that's happened to me here. And I transform through working the steps as within, so without. So I get transformed on the inside through any number of times through those steps. And the transformation happens and it can't help but show up on my body. So I'm very grateful to be here. It's an honor and a pleasure. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive eater from Los Angeles, California. I'll put my uh, information in the chat and um, 